Ahab combs a snake Trying to rake in at last night's fair And a solitary sailor Spends the facts of his life Like small change on strangers Pause his inside peacoat pocket Hello, welcome to a very special bonus edition of Love That Album podcast. I have for you a really terrific interview that I did a couple of weeks ago with Barney Hoskins, the biographer of Tom Waits. He's written a great book called Low Side of the Road, a biography of Tom Waits. And this interview was originally going to be part of Love That Album number 46 proper. However, my conversation with uh, Pickleloaf of the Silver and Gold podcast uh, was so enjoyable that we went on for quite a long time and I sort of thought that maybe asking you listeners to uh, download a four-hour podcast was probably not a reasonable ask. So I've split it up into two shows. Uh, The the reviews of Rain Dogs and the Heart of Saturday Night that I uh, did with Pickleloaf is on one download and this interview with Barney Hoskins is part of the download that you have uh, just made. So I hope you enjoy. Without any further ado, here's my discussion with Barney Hoskins. Final editions on the stands. The town crier's crying there with nickels in his hands. Pigs in a blanket, 69 cents. Eggs roll them over in a package of cans. Adam and Eve on a log, you can sink them damn straight. Hash browns, hash browns, you know I can't be late. Hello. I'm very, very excited. I always seem to say that, but I really, really am because I have on the other end of a Skype connection, on the other side of the world to me, the author, Barney Hoskins, who um, his book, Low Side of the Road, A Life of Tom Waits, has been giving me a lot of pleasure over the last couple of weeks. Um, Barney's background, he's been writing bios for quite a number of years, and uh, he's... Uh, also been writing for Mojo and Uncut magazine. Um, welcome to the show, Barney. Pleased to be here. Many thanks for your time. Um, just quickly, I mean, like run, running through a list of your bios, it seems that um, you have a bit of a, uh, a passion for uh, not only uh, American uh, subject matter, uh, American musicians, but West Coast musicians at that. So you've gone and written books like, you know, Beneath the Diamond Sky about Hyde Ashbury and, uh, Low Side of the Road, of course, and Waiting for the Sun in Hotel California. What, what is it that sort of drew you to, um, West Coast American musicians? I mean, is that, is that your particular passion or, I mean, I know you've written about Led Zeppelin and, uh, and the band amongst others, but, what what made you choose uh, uh, the West Coast of America in particular? Well, I mean, in general, I was uh, obsessed from um, with America and American music from a very young age, and I don't know exactly why that was. It's just something to do with, you know, just hearing uh, American pop music on the radio and, you know, watching American movies and TV programs. Uh, I just kind of became obsessed with this place, and that led me uh, ultimately to living in America for periods of my life. And I lived in 
Los Angeles um, for about a year in in the early 1980s. And so my kind of obsession with Southern California commenced there and led to two books about about the L.A. music scene, really. One, Waiting for the Sun, was a much bigger and broader kind of, well, like kind of 50-year 50 50 year history of L.A. as a music city. Um, and then Hotel California was a more um, <clears throat> kind of uh, niche or uh, sort of... Uh, Ring, well, it was almost like taking a chapter of the earlier book and blowing it up into into a book of its own, and and so it was the story really of 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 sort of Laurel Canyon as a place and as um as as a kind of inspiration. Warner Reprise Records, the whole singer songwriter thing, and all the country rock uh, bands as well. So, and you know, wait, sort of had a, a, a role to play in that book, particularly because he was initially on, he was on Asylum Records, so in a kind of misfit way, he was part of that stable of singer-songwriters, and, and it, obviously, you know, one of his most famous songs, Old 55, was covered by the Eagles, which made him his first decent money as a, as a songwriter. I was going to bring that up. Way- I was, I was yeah. just going to say, I was going to bring that up actually a little bit later on, but we might as well talk about that now. You mentioned in the book, like on a number of occasions, that Waits had nothing but disdain for the Eagles and in general for what he called the Laurel Canyon Cowboys. Uh, basically, you know, those people who he thought, well, you know, you don't go out to the country, you're just wearing a pair of uh, jeans and a checked shirt and, and, and a cowboy hat and singing how great it would be to live in the country. And, Waits himself, yes. I guess, copped a whole lot of flack for uh, you know what you wrote about in the book. You know, from you know, people saying, "Well, you're doing an act, you're doing a shtick." We're not completely convinced of it, but he said, "Look, I live in the city. This is this is my my thing." Why do you think it was that um, he maybe copped so much flack for you know putting on initially that what you call, I think, in the book, the boho act? I mean. You know, someone like Dylan, for uh, for instance, he copped flack for not doing the act that he did, like in the beginning, not playing the the, the folk singer. Uh, you know, when he went electric, he decided he wanted to do something else, and he copped flack for not doing the act. But Waits seemed to cop flack for doing, you know, what appealed to him. Well, you know, Morris. I mean, I think anyone who gets on a stage in any kind of capacity um is doing an act uh some more disingenuously than others but i mean you know was Waits has said himself you know you you telling me that dylan isn't doing an act you telling me neil young isn't doing an act mm-hmm. um everybody's doing an act in some form or or, or fashion um Waits um chose to in a rather more kind of uh, artful and um, you know conscious way to sort of uh, put on a kind of uh, perf- performance uh, to invent this character, the the stumbling uh, drunken boho character, you know, and it served him quite well. Um, you know, it enabled him to create a sort of world and a milieu for his music, and it also enabled him to kind of hide behind this mask. I think now he kind of looks back on that character and sees it 
not in terms of honesty or dishonesty, but just in terms of um, limitation. I think he, he would now say that it was a rather uh, limited sort of character. In other words, it was a character that he didn't really invent, but he kind of pieced together from his, you know, various influences from, from jazz and beat literature. And in that sense, right. he's really sort of disavowed it. I think he's, he's, he's uh, almost disowned it, I think. Um, uh, and really since, um, <clears throat> Swordfish Trombones in 1983, you know, he, I think he would say that he's, he, he started, uh, creating a, a truly original sort of universe, um, to write songs about. And I mean, nothing is ever, nothing, there's nothing new under the sun, but the, the, you know, Tom Waits we think of now is really absolutely, it's sort of, he, it's as close to being, his own creation, his his own thing, um, as you know, as any as any body of music that anyone's made. I think in in fifty, sixty years, you know, you can't really, you can't kind of pin him down. You can't pigeonhole Tom Waits, and in the way that you could pigeonhole the guy who made who made um, the Heart of Saturday Night. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so let me ask you. What was it that? Um, what What was your first recollection of uh, hearing Tom Waits? And you know, uh, did what was it that drew you in? Was it the music? Was it that initial boho persona? Uh, and then what kept you with him? Well, I mean, my first awareness of Waits uh, was was probably like Nighthawks of the Diner. Nighthawks of the Diner. I was just sort of being aware of that, um, being aware of him just coming to London, seeing pictures of him in this slouch cap and not really sort of knowing enough about the references and the influences to sort of be able to play. I mean, I kind of realized he had something to do with jazz and uh, beatniks, but I was too young to really, um, you know, kind of fit him into the, the greater scheme of things. Um, it was a little bit later that I started, I, you know, it was actually due to uh, someone I think that he influenced very much, Nick Cave, mm. who was a friend of mine, Nick, um, compatriot of yours. Nick Nick was, I remember playing um, albums to me, like Small Change and Blue Valentine maybe, when I knew Nick. And so this is in the early 80s. Um, Nick sort of indirectly or even maybe directly t- turned me on to, to wait and... And then Swordfish Trombones came out, and I remember we were all just, I was writing NME, New Musical Express at the time, here in London, and I just remember how extraordinary Swordfish Trombones was. It just shook up any preconceptions or or sort of set ideas you might have had about Tom Waits, particularly as it came out just after One from the Heart. And I remember just none of us being able to understand how one one man could make Two records so completely unalike as the one from the heart soundtrack, which I which I love dearly, um, and and then Swordfish Trombones. I, I still think that's that's an extraordinary year in the life of a creative artist. Um, so we suddenly had a very contemporary artist who was not only uh, leaving his own musical past behind, but he was completely at odds with what was happening in music in the early to mid 80s mm, mm. you know when everything was when everything was getting very 
um, sort of mechanical and synthetic. And here was this extraordinarily sort of organic, primitive sounding record, um, you know, uh, with all sorts of different musical styles on it. And, you know, I just, it, I still think it was a, a remarkable and audacious act of sort of self reinvention. I, I sort of did a little bit of a survey just to sort of see what else came out in um, 1985, which is immediately like a couple of years after Swordfish Trombones, but the year of Rain Dogs, just to sort of see, right, well, what were his contemporaries doing? And, you know, okay, so you've already gone and mentioned Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, uh, where, you know, Firstborn is Dead came out, um, and your Rum Sodomy and the Lash by the Pogues, and maybe Suzanne Vega's first album, uh, you know, would have, you know, sort of, he would have fitted in maybe in that company, but what else was going on? There was, you know, the first album from Whitney Houston. There was songs from the Big Chair by Tears for Fears, Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits, and all that like. So he certainly, you're mentioning that he didn't necessarily even fit in with Asylum era Tom Waits, but he certainly wasn't fitting in with any of his contemporaries either. No, he was really. Um, I mean, he did what every artist should do, which is to say, I am going to make. Uh, the art that I want to make and I'm going to follow my instincts and I'm not going to try and second guess, you know, my public, um, <clears throat> or my fans. I'm not going to try and, um, please anybody other than myself really. And, and I think that is sort of the sacred duty of, of, of art because, you know, if you're not, if you're not kind of following your own muse then what you know what's the point people are really only interested in what you can um what you can offer that's that's kind of uniquely yours that's sort of singular um and i mean because having said that the most uh the, the most sort of uh atypical or um <clears throat> uh sort of uh the track on Rain Dogs that sort of, paradoxically, is most shocking really now is Downtown Train, which mm, is mm. almost the only time that Waits has ever kind of compromised a little bit since Swordfish Trombones, shall we say, and, you know, kind of consciously written a sort of pop rock song that's going to work on the radio and has worked on the radio for other people. Um, and... I think the moment he'd done it, he regretted it. Oh, really? I mean, it's a great pop song, but I think it's it's sort of. I don't think he ever he never sort of, as it were, made that mistake again. I don't have a problem with it, but it just it, it just sounds like a a song that Springsteen could have written. Or, or, and again, so what, you know? But it but it sort of sticks out in that sense, and and um and I think. And so I think, you know, he regretted it from that point of view. It, it kind of fits in with the rest of the record. But anyway, that's the basic point, I think, that, that, that uh, Waits just really, um, you know, Waits is so influential in terms of how uh, profoundly he rejected sort of uh, the sound of 80s music, you know, the overproduction of everything, the, the sequencing of everything, you know, the over-elaboration, the 48 tracks, the, you know, the, just the, the, um, everybody was using, you know, drum machines and, and electronic keyboards, and all these, um, avatars of the 60s and 70s, and even Neil Young, you know, this guy who made the incredible sort of lo-fi records like, <clears throat> you know, like Tonight's the Night. You yes. know, 
you know, come the eighties, even Neil is, is, makes a, an album called uh, called "Is Lanny on Water and Life." I mean, there's drum machines on yes. it, and and, Alec, and, uh, uh, and you know, and, and electronic keyboards, and it just seems like that's where everyone was going, and 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 weights just refused to go there. As did Nick Cave, as did the Pogues, as you say. There, there were kindred spirits. I'm not sure that Waits was necessarily as aware of them as he probably is now. I mean, I think he was certainly a, a fan of, of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. I think he's certainly a, a fan of Shane McGowan and the Pogues. And, you know, there's there's a sort of fraternity of people like that who, um, you know, who can't really admire each other for kind of sticking to their guns, you know. And, and uh, you know, I think the influence of Waits' records in the 80s have been so profound on subsequent sort of generations. I mean, I'm thinking of everyone from PJ Harvey to the late Mark Linkus of, of Sparkle Horse. You know, there's just, there's just so many artists who have Tom Waits to thank for sticking to his guns. Mm. Oh, and all the more amazing considering that, you know, as you say in your book, when he was um, finishing his time off at Asylum and he done it with that character he'd had it with that character uh and I, I i think you even mentioned something about him discovering one of his asylum records in a bargain basement bin so he really sort of thought he'd you know he had nothing he'd left no legacy he, he, he was like if he didn't do something then and there he was um he was off the map he was just going to be completely forgotten about and um i i, I guess yes. i'd say it's certainly true that there's a lot of people who i've met who say that they're Tom Waits fans, but they they only know of the Island and the Anti Records uh, stuff. And I'm I, I personally I'm I'm a huge fan of that Asylum Records era, and I, I suspect that you know you probably know a lot of people who would cite that era as something of an influence. Indeed, you know, I mean, there are certainly people who prefer the earlier Waits. I mean, such a, it is such a kind of before and after story, isn't it? Which is why my biography is like a life in two acts. It's mm. such a sort of um, stark dividing line. Um, I love both equally. And it was interesting to me when I sort of compiled at the end of the book my 50 favourite Waits tracks. Yes. <clears throat> um, you know, literally split down the middle, uh, half of them predated you know, were from the sort of uh, the asylum years and half of them were, you know, were, were from the island um, and post island years. And, um, and so I love, I love both. I mean, I love, I love both, both weights. <laughs> um, uh, and obviously there are, there are, it's not as if there's an absolute break between the two. I don't think there is. I think you can start to hear, some of the places that Waits was going to go in, you know, the the, the last two Asylum albums, um, mm, mm. and you know, they're pretty, you know, they're clearly there are people who only like the early Waits and people who only like the, the the later Waits, but I think most people, most real fans of Waits, like both as much as I do, as much as probably you do. Yes. Um, well, I just want to yeah, let's talk for a little bit about the two albums that's being discussed on uh, uh, this edition of the podcast. Now, I I was sort of thinking about this. I, I sort of hadn't intended this when I uh, when myself and uh, my friend Alex uh, had picked these two albums. But um, thinking about Heart of Saturday Night, in, in terms of the career, there's something of a symmetry. Both 
uh, second albums, you know, The Heart of Saturday Night for real and Rain Dogs for the second half of his musical career or the rebirth, um, both are way different to what their contemporaries were doing. Uh, both, in my mind anyway, are high benchmark albums. Uh, where do you see these albums in terms of at each point in his career? Are they are they important albums overall, or are they just great Tom Waits albums? Well, you know, I mean, <clears throat> importance is uh, a difficult thing to really sort of establish. You know, what 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 is important and what is unimportant. I I I don't really. Uh, it, it doesn't really matter. You know, it, it, different things are important to different people and in and, and in different contexts. I think that you know what you have to say about uh, Heart of Saturday Night is that it um it it, it certainly uh was about weights um doing in a kind of fully realized way what he really wanted had probably wanted to do on the first album but but uh, but hadn't hadn't quite pulled off or hadn't been allowed to quite pull off you know in other words um you know let's go full tilt for the the jazz beat boho thing you know closing time had hints and and, and elements of that but in many ways it wasn't so different from a lot of uh, sort of piano man singer songwriter albums um you know it 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 certainly didn't tell us where weights was going to kind of end up right 35 years later right um <clears throat> i think that uh i think out of a out of saturday night partly because you know david geffen thought look let's you know this guy actually needs some serious like jazz musicians he needs he needs a producer who gets the references, who can talk to Tom about Jack Kerouac and Lord Buckley and so forth. So let's get Bones Howe in, you know, um, let's, you know, let, let's get a proper kind of sax player and, you know, and let's get people in with, with chops and let's have Tom really, let's enable Tom, let's facilitate Tom, let's, let's make it possible for him to, you know, write in the the mode that he really wants to write in, which includes the sort of jazz hipsteries, um, you know, recitation uh, aspects of something like Diamonds in my, on my windshield, which which wouldn't have, you just, it wouldn't have worked or it's unlikely that, that Tom wasn't ready to do that on the first album, I think, you know. Um, so... <clears throat> It's it's just a much um, more um, accurate representation of uh, what Waits wanted to do with the character he'd invented and this this you know this this world he was exploring this kind of nighttime neon world that he didn't really uh, it, it, it wasn't really present on Closing Time mm. and Rain Dogs and Rain Dogs. You know, Rain Dogs is, you know, it's it's uh, it's a strange one in many ways because um, it's you know so much about New York City, or at least inspired by, anchored in New York City, which is not Waits' natural habitat or environment. You know, he had 
uprooted himself from his native Southern California to move to New York. I think out of a slightly misguided sense that that's what you should do if you want to be a kind of, uh, you really want to be a serious sort of artist. You know, you have to move to New York and you, and there's this whole kind of downtown scene going on there. And he wanted to just, he wanted to do Gotham. You know, he wanted to do New York City. Uh, and, you know, maybe he and Catherine both felt that that was going to be important for his just artistic development. Um, I think in the end, you know, he came to the conclusion actually that, New York wasn't it. It wasn't a good fit for him. He didn't really want to be there. Uh, he needed more space around him, and he couldn't really at the end. At the end, he couldn't really get California out of his system. He missed home, and so he went back there. But you know, I mean, Rain Dogs is, you know, it's it's in some sense a very urban album. It is. It's it's all about Waits reacting to this very extreme environment where he. he you know, he felt like a fish out of water, I think, in, in, in many ways. It was quite an oppressive place, but also, you know, of course, very stimulating uh, and exciting. Um, I think when we listen back to the record, you know, obviously it's, it follows on from Swordfish Trombones in a, you know, it kind of reiterates and, and deepens what he had uh, achieved on Swordfish Trombones. Um, you know, Swordfish Trombones was made up of all sorts of different things. It was, it was, it was a very eclectic piece of work. Mm. Uh, and Rain Dogs is equally eclectic. But what you've got is you have got a real sense of, um, your real sense of, you know, the Rain Dogs of the title, you know, are, are, are these marginalized street people, um, scuffling, suffering, um, you know, rejected by by society, and you know, nowhere is that more extreme, or certainly was more extreme than in than in New York City. Uh, you know, the the the, the <clears throat> extreme inequalities of uh, of of kind of wealth and power, as 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 opposed to you know the the the, the people who don't make it there. And I, and you know, Waits has always just been interested in he's you know not interested in successful people. He's interested in you know, in, in not, not sort of, um, losers for the sake of being losers. He's just interested in real human beings who are, um, struggling at the margins of, uh, of the Western world. You think, and I think he found that he found the place fascinating. He found it very inspiring, but, but the record also has lots of other stuff in it. You know, yes. there are songs about New York, um, but then there are, there are, you know, at least half the songs are really not about New York, um, and <clears throat> you know, cemetery, cemetery polka is really not has nothing to do with New York. Has to do with <laughs> you know, his 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 own sort of his own some sort of idea of his own relatives, his own family. Gun Street Girl, um, as as I say in my book, I think is very much a template for the more uh, rural, um, almost sort of uh, 
you know, uh, Americana, country blues, Ameri you know, mutant Americana of his later records. Mm. Uh, a real pointer there, you know, with the banjo and stuff. Um, and, and then, you know, of course, we, you know, we can't not talk about Keith Richards. Um, you know, Keith with Tom in New York. A track called Union Square, you mm -hmm. know, which is which is a place reference in New York City. Yeah. Uh, um, but Big Black Mariah, you know, you got this kind of sense of of uh, uh, rock and roll in New York, um, and so it's 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 really quite a quite a diverse and eclectic eclectic piece of work, Rain Dogs, um, and, and I think it is. Yeah, you, you're you're right to draw the parallel. I think is interesting. You know, Heart, Heart of Saturday Night really cements what he didn't quite have the courage to do on his debut album, <clears throat> and Rain Dog sort of takes Swordfish Trombones into you know a you know it just it just takes it a, a step forward. Um, and the musicianship is probably. I mean, you know, this is Mark Rebo is on the record, and you know what Fred Tackett managed to do on Swordfish Trombones, which should not be underrated. Mm. You know, Mark Rebo takes takes that maybe a kind of atonal dissonant step forward, and and you know, it's is it's really he's really sort of uh, uh, you know he's got the musicians around him that that that, that really serve this new music well well you, you mentioned mark reboot and um the thing that's always struck me about his work uh with weights is i i guess that um uh that sort of staccato style of guitar playing those really short uh short little um attacky type of notes for lack of better expression uh and, and you know, there were sort of like a whole lot of uh guitar heroes people in in um if you could play like a million notes per minute, then you know guys with really long hair would worship at your altar. But uh, for me, and and obviously you know for for weights who knew what he wanted, um, it was someone like Mark Ribot who who um, was you know probably had all the chops that these other guys did, but really worked with um, more of a, a, a texture that staccato thing that. Um, uh, rather than sort of going yes. far, far more overblown, like uh, some of the more conventional guitar heroes were. Absolutely. I mean, I think you know, this new music, you know, the island, the the island music. It's it's kind of it's not anti music, but it's certainly anti rock and roll. It's anti virtuosity, um, and it's very much about pulling in pre rock and roll. Uh, music forms um, in, into Waits's new musical language, I think. So, you know, polkas and rumbas and, you know, I mean, Waits is almost um, devising his his very own kind of world music. Uh, I think that's what he wanted to do. He really just wanted to uh, go beyond the limitations of, of rock and roll and sort of, you know, 4-4, four, four, you know, four four rhythms and uh, uh, stock guitar riffs, and it's kind of like, why don't we kind of open this up to more diverse influences? Let's pull all this stuff in, but make it very much, you know, it's 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 still very much my own voice and my own language. But I'm going to borrow a bit of, you know, tarantella here, a bit of rumba there, you know, I'm I'm going to, you know, I'm 
all this stuff that Catherine's been turning me on to, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's sort of Cuban music or, or it's gospel music or indeed if it's, it's blues, you know, I mean, walking Spanish is, is a sort of a throwback to the style of Blue Valentine or Heart Attack and Vine. So it's not as if, you know, there's no connection to Waits' past. Uh, he's happy to do things like that when, when it works, you know. I mean, the great quote that he said at the time of Swordfish Trombones is, you know, he wanted, he wanted, um, musical settings and textures and rhythms that fit the characters he was singing about rather than, you know, just kind of stock instrumentation and, and, um, arrangement. You know, he wanted, he wanted songs that sound, music that sounded like the characters he was writing about, you know, uh, and, and, and I think that's, you know, that's what he achieved on Swordfish Trombones and it's, and it's, and it's what he achieved on, on Rain Dogs is what he's achieved or certainly, uh, um, aspired to doing ever since then. So was there anything in your research that ever sort of suggested that um, maybe he was uh, maybe he was sort of like reacting with his music by making non-musical observations? He was looking the world around him, the world beyond uh, the jazz joints of Los Angeles or, or, or beyond the film noir that you mentioned he was so fond of watching. Was he were these different musical styles uh, in reaction to just other things like, you know, looking, seeing what was happening in the news or reading history books? And he thought, well, I could come up with a tune that reflects what I'm reading. Anything in your research turn up something like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think um, it's it's very clear that he just had a kind of uh, an epiphany and it had a lot to do with Catherine's influence. And he just suddenly saw that the... You know the, the the boho jazz character that the part that he played was, you know, was it just wasn't original. It was a very uh, narrow, circumscribed um, creature, and there was just you know the world out there was infinitely richer. Uh, so it was really about kind of expanding way beyond that. As entertaining as it had been, it was suddenly like. Well, there's just so much more going on in the world and going on in music. <clears throat> why limit yourself? You know, why why pretend to be, you know, some some sort of uh, barfly character in a film noir classic from the forties? You know, let's sing about Hong Kong and Singapore. Let's also sing about, you know, uh, um, <clears throat> Texas. So let's 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 um let's do. Um, you know, a kind of crazed jazz instrumental about midtown Manhattan. Let's, you know, let's, let's cast around. Let's, let's open this up, you know. Um, and, and I think, uh, I think that's really the point, isn't it? You know, I mean, you can't, he can't change his voice mm. and he, and, and, and so forth. And there's certain things that are just going to be what Tom Waits does, you know, it's not like you're ever going to listen to anything he's done since Swordfish and not think, well, that's Tom Waits. You know, you always know that it's Tom Waits, but it's, it's Tom Waits, you know, to put it in a, in a, in, in very sort of, um, simplistic metaphorical terms, it's Tom Waits wearing, you know, lots of different outfits and lots of different kinds of hats, you know, rather than just the same hat and the same stained suit. So I would argue, 
uh, you know, based on what we were speaking a little bit before about uh, downtown train, and you were suggesting, well, it's this little pop thing that maybe didn't necessarily fit on Rain Dogs, but by virtue of that album's diversity, maybe it actually did. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. It works. There. It's just the most, it's clearly the most mainstream thing sure. that you hear on the record. I mean, interestingly, um, <clears throat> Stephen Hodges, the drummer on the record, and also he drummed on the previous one, on Swordfish, you know, said that he told me that uh, there was a, an earlier version of Downtown Train with the core band on Rain Dogs, and, you know, including him and Reburn, and Waits, in what would seem to have been a quite calculated way, decided to re-record the song with a different band that included G.E. Smith, uh, who was, became Dylan's guitar player, um, and Tony Tony Levine. Mm. It was almost like he he sort of okay, let's do a version of this. That I don't know whether it was Chris Blackwell that that talked him into it at Island or something. Island Island said, "Come on, let's let's, let's try and get ahead. It can't hurt. It's not going to distort uh, what the record is or who you are, you know." Um, and I guess Waits thought, okay, you know what? I'll give, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll throw them this bone. We'll, we'll do a kind of, you know, uh, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be a Bob Seger record or a Rod Stewart record to cite two of the people who covered the track. Um, but I'll do it with just enough of a kind of commercial sheen. Uh, and maybe we'll get a hit out of it, and then maybe lots of people, will, and then lots of people will 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 listen to the record and fall in love with Cemetery Polka or Tango till they saw. You know, um, I can only imagine that's what he thought. And then maybe after he thought, no, actually, I'm not going to do that again. And you know, for sure, there's nothing like Downtown Train on Frank's Wild Years. Mm. Coming, I want to come back to uh, the discussion that we're having about about image. And the like. Okay, um, never. It's never been the case for anyone else that I associated with one instrument. But I remember, you know, when I first sort of heard these island records, and you know, this is like after having really enjoyed, you know, the the piano stylings that that he'd gone and done. That you know, here he was doing something completely different. It really freaked me out. Not, I mean, you could listen to uh, what was the album a couple of times, a couple of years or oh, a couple of albums back real gone i think there was no keyboard on it whatsoever and like you know when he sort of decided he was going to do more with the guitar this sort of seemed to me like this is part of his declaration of a separation uh from his past i mean do you think that you know his greater reliance on the guitar was about shedding of that previous image or was it just uh, once again part of um, wanting to see sonically what else he could do uh, yeah, I think there was a shedding there. I think, uh, <clears throat> I think you know, uh, part of the rationale was, uh, you know, if I sit down at the keyboard, you know, my fingers just automatically fall into certain shapes, and it's just, it's almost like automatic pilot. It's very hard to uh, just think outside um, what I've always done. Uh, when I sit at the piano, you know, so in order to challenge myself and sort of step into the unknown, I have to, I have to step away from the piano and it just almost like come up with, you know, vocal lines, um, 
in, in, you know, out, out of nothing, uh, or, 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 you know, just, just start somewhere different. I know if I start the piano, I know pretty much, you know, where I'm going to go. And, and, you know, he does, I mean, there's Johnsburg, Illinois on Swordfish. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's interesting. That there isn't, uh, there isn't a John's, a Johnsburg, Illinois on, on rain dogs, you know, uh, or, <clears throat> or not for a long, you know, there isn't anything like that for a while. He does eventually, he goes back to the piano a bit later in his work. It's like he kind of makes friends with it again. But on rain dogs, I mean, he very much, it's like, I'm not going to do anything remotely sort of sentimental um or tender i think i mean there is tenderness on the record but not in that way i thought that um on mule variations pictures in a frame uh was, was probably the most tenderly romantic uh and you know, closest return to his early style that he'd gone and done in many a year and it was all the more interesting considering that this was yet a new start you know his first post island years record yeah, I mean, I, I I love Mule Variations. It's one of my very favourite Waits records. Um, my absolute favourite, and really almost my one of my possibly my favourite Waits piano, you know, ballad, mm. tender ballad is 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 Take It With Me. Uh, it's just uh, it's just such a such a, an incredible song. But Picture in a Frame is great too. I mean, there's there's three or four on that record that that are. You know, really, really fantastic. But it's, but it's, it's a very different kind of piano, isn't it? It's, it's this sort of very, uh, it's like the sound of an upright piano in, in a, in a sort of front parlor room. It does, uh, yes. You know, recorded in a, in a, in a very ambient way. So it's, it's very different from, even from Johnsburg, Illinois, let alone from, uh, you know, uh, the early piano stuff on the Asylum records. Right. Um, now, I, I think it would probably be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit. Uh, you've already gone and mentioned uh, Kathleen Brennan, but um, your your book uh, sort of you know, brings up the fact that, you know, it came about with some of the interviews that you made with people like Bones Howe saying that um, uh, Kathleen Brennan uh, actually saved him. I mean, they've been fairly private as a married couple, but, uh, you know, certainly health-wise, as well as sort of, you know, possibly helping him to work out how he uh, went with his career from the island years onwards. But do you think he could not have made an album like Swordfish Trombones or Rain Dogs or indeed anything that came after that without um, her behind him, you know, either through introduction of uh, some of the musical styles which he proclaimed to have not heard, i.e. Captain Beefheart, or, or um, just by you know being there to say, I believe in you, I think you can do this, you can ditch the, the boho if you want to. Could could he have made those albums without her? Well, we'll never know, Morris, will we? we we'll, we'll just, uh, we'll never know what he could or would or might have done without Kathleen. I, I tend to think that um, he may be attributes a little too much influence to her you know i mean the whole the captain Beefheart thing is is a case in point you know uh he was managed by he had been managed by the same guy who managed captain Beefheart. you know he, he'd been out on the road with frank zappa and the mothers of invention it's hard to to believe that 
he hadn't listened to Captain Beefheart, you know. Right. I mean, you listen to Heart Attack and Vine, and, you know, how, he, uh, how could he not have listened to Captain Beefheart? Right. Um, the idea that Kathleen turned him on to Beefheart. I mean, she, you know, I mean, people I am interviewed who'd known Kathleen will say she really wasn't, she didn't have a big record collection. You know, she was not a musician. She was a literature person. She was a literature major. You know, that was her focus was on the writing, was on, was on words and writing. So I just think they came together and it was, it wasn't so much about whether Kathleen sat Tom down and, you know, told them to listen to Beefheart or, or, or whatever, uh, or, or Lithuanian, you know, dance. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was more just about, you know, uh, something, there was something just catalytic there for, for weights. She opened his eyes. She kind of shook him up. She took him into, into, she took him to places that he hadn't been before. And, you know, I think that was what, tipped him into a place where he thought oh hang on a minute there's there's more to life than you know i'm just going down a dead end really with with the, the you know with with the the shtick that i've been doing the character that i've been playing you know I mean, it's it's a it's a dead end um and they don't even care about me at, at electra asylum anymore you know any novelty value i had is sort of like uh, as has gone, you know, it, all they care about is, you know, is Queen and the Eagles and, right, you know, they're, they're big prestige, they're big artists, you know, and it just doesn't, I, you know, I, I just don't count anymore. Uh, so it sort of changed overnight. I think, so I think Kathleen's influence was more about, you know, it was, it, it was a sort of um, a more general, Sort of, sort of, but I think she also, uh, you know, he, I mean, you know, we have, we have really his work, only his words to go by. She, he claims he's, that she saved his life and enabled him, at least for a while, not to drink so self destructively and ultimately to, to, to stop drinking completely. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, they, they were just an, a great kind of, um, romantic, um, um, creative and matrimonial partnership and I think he you know I think he the revelation to him was that he could um, be with a, a woman who he loved and who loved him uh, it didn't have to be self-destructive it didn't it didn't have to be melodramatic it could start a family he could have all that and be creatively energized too and that's served him extremely well mm. All right. Well, I think we've already sort of gone and preempted um, uh, in the discussion what was going to be my final question, which was um, for you, you know, Electra Asylum versus Ireland, uh, which is it a, even a relevant question? And you know, you've already sort of gone and said you love both equally. So um, I'll take this final weights-related conversation in a slightly different direction. It's sort of influenced by a discussion I had with a work colleague uh, yesterday, I think like I was sitting around at lunchtime eating my sandwich and reading reading your book, and this fellow came up to me, and he, you know, fairly fairly young, just fresh out of university, and he said, "Oh, you know, what's your reading?" And I showed him the book, and he said, oh, "I don't know who Tom Waits is. You know, what does he do?" 
and for, you know, because I don't necessarily see that this fellow is that musically involved, but his question was sincere, and I thought, how do I describe what Tom Waits is? If I were to introduce him to three songs that says, this is what Tom Waits is, if I were to say to you, how would I show this fellow, what would be, like, not necessarily your three favourite Tom Waits songs, but what would be the three songs you'd introduce to someone who didn't know who Tom Waits was to say, right, well, this is far from comprehensive, but this gives you an idea who Tom Waits was and is. I mean, it's. I would probably want to choose, you know, uh, the some extreme polarities, aren't there? There's, there's, there's probably, you know, a very tender piano ballad at one end of the spectrum and then a really brutal thing at the other. Um, so I'd probably kind of go for... I mean, I'm looking at my list of favourite tracks... And um, so you could sort of say, well, you know, you might have Kentucky Avenue at one end, and then and then, you know, Heart Attack and Vine at the other, or <coughs> Take It With Me at mm. one end of the spectrum, and then going out west at the other, you know. So it might be it might be two out of those three, and then you'd have to choose like Tom Travert's Blues, I think, because mm. it is his greatest song. I think it's his greatest song. Um, it's certainly his most moving song. I think it's just, it's where all his um, kind of, uh, where all the sort of sleaze and despair and compassion come together. Um, and it, it's, uh, so it would have to be that. And then it, and then it would, you know, it, it would, it would be something really loud and, and, and raucous and beef hearty. And, um, like going out west or, or heart attack of mine, and then something really tender and sweet, like take it with me. Um, broken bicycles, picture in a frame, mm. Johnsburg, Illinois. You know, there aren't many artists, Morris, who can do, um, who can do, um, such different things. I mean, you think of someone like Neil Young, you know, who can do really sort of cauterizing um, grungy, punky rock and roll with Crazy Horse, you know, with really sort of vicious sort of squalling guitar sounds. And then and then he can, um, you know, he, he can go, go off stage and come back and play, you know, You and Me or The Needle and the Damage done on his own on acoustic and it's, and it's just so sort of quiet and soft and, and, and tender. I think Waits is, is, you know, Waits is the same. You know, he can, he can, uh, I mean, he says it's like, it's sort of, it's the, it's the alcoholic's remorse following the kind of blowout on Saturday night, you know, you sort of stumble out of bed and sit at the piano and, and, and express your remorse and contrition for whatever the hell you did in a blackout the night before. Um, so that's, that's his kind of, how he explains the polarities, but that doesn't cover what he does now because he's been sober many years and, and, um, you know, he can still do, you know, I, you know, bad as bad as me, I thought was a terrific record. Absolutely. I, I really, such a, such a, such a, um, oh, I hate the cliched phrase return to form, but I thought it was, it was a really musical record after what had been a really, a rather amusical, 
album in Written Real Gone. It was really arranged. The horns were amazing on it, and, mm. and but he can still do the, the sort of brutal stuff, and 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 then just um, take your breath away with something that's very soft and and um, empathic, you know. Uh, so, you know, if I was yeah going to try and sit someone down and say, well, this is this is. Hey, there are many moods of Tom Waits. <laughs> <laughs> so I should probably be making him a, a, a mixtape or something like that, not two or three songs. Exactly. Yeah, you probably need like four or five things probably just to sort of illustrate the basis that this man can cover. Right. Look, I want to thank you so very, very much for uh, sitting and taking the time, especially with uh, your your throat and the lozenges and all that. My throat ailment. Well, it's it's sort of appropriate, really, for kind of for, for, for weights. We know we know the places his voice has gone <laughs> over the years. We it's do. Probably um, apt. All right. Look, thanks so much for your insight, Barney. I'm once again so grateful that uh, you were able to afford me the time for uh, the Love That Album podcast, and I'm sure all the listeners out there will have certainly gained some more insight into uh, the music that was uh, uh, that and still is. It's a living beast of Tom Waits, and and your insight into Ray Manzarek at the end really appreciated. Uh, if um, if the listenership out there uh, wants to delve into uh, further of your books besides um, Low Side of the Road, A Life of Tom Waits. Uh, what are some of the other writings? I know you've also you've got your website, rocksbackpages.com. Rocksbackpages, yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of stuff on there, um, some of my stuff, but, but, but um, many, many thousands of uh, pieces by uh, many other writers, uh, most of the best music writers of the last kind of 60 years, actually, really. And, and uh, so there's a lot of stuff on there and audio interviews with everyone from Waits to uh, Hendrix and Kurt Cobain. But I mean, what if, if you, I mean, you know, the books I'm proud of, proudest of probably are, are uh, like Hotel California and Across the Great Divide, uh, my book about the band, and, and I guess um, um, Waiting for the Sun, the LA book. Um, there's a few other things in there um, that aren't quite as substantial as that, but, but um, I still think are kind of okay. A little, little book about glam rock, uh, you know, a little, little book about Prince. So there's, yeah. there's some other stuff in there. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean... I'll, I recommend the listeners out there do uh, a bit of a search it on Amazon or, or Google or however it is that you choose to be able to track down copies of the books uh, and uh, go out and buy them. They'll be a great read. And as I said, I'm really, really loving uh, Low Side of the Road. Once again, Bunny Hoskins, thank you so much for your time today. I love that album. Thank you so much, Morris. Real pleasure to speak with you. Cheers.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 